Hey there, future fans! It's that time again. The time I think we skipped last year, because I am woefully inaccurate, but it is time for the Future Flicks Awards for all the films I watched during 2020. Alright, my future friends, thank you, welcome to the show. Thank you for tuning in. First episode of the year, and a little update about me, I may have COVID. I don't know. Midway through Friday the 15th, I started to feel horrible. And I was born with a heart murmur. Uh, I'm a big guy, so I have high blood pressure, so heart issues have always been uh, a fear for me. Which is why every year I try to get healthier, and I usually do for a little bit, and then it just, then it just swings back. But I first thought it was a heart thing Uh, because last year I went to the hospital twice. The first time I had hurt a rib. And when the doctor at Doctor on Duty took the x-ray, he noticed something concerning. And he says it's probably nothing, but it could be the sign that you had a heart attack. So yay, that way I hurt my ribs could also be the sign of a heart attack. So I went to the ER, no heart attack. I'm fine. That was just a couple thousand dollars for nothing, you know. Though, to be honest, I would rather the doctor take that precaution than go, Ah, you're probably fine. Don't worry about it. And then literally the week after that, or a week or two after that, I went to the hospital again because I was feeling terrible, which we decided was just a mix of dehydration because they said I was really dehydrated. And I was talking to Anne about it, and I had slept terribly the night or the night and the night before. And all of these things just accumulated to make me feel like I was really sick. So now, thanks to those two things, I tend to panic when I uh, when I feel anything because I was born with a heart murmur. I've always had heart palpitations, but yesterday I started, or yesterday, back on Friday, I started feeling really bad, and I had quite a few of the main COVID symptoms. I had chills running through my body, fatigue, muscle and body aches, headache, uh, lots of congestion. I didn't have difficulty breathing. Or loss of taste or smell, but every once in a while I would smell or taste blood without actually having any. Well, of course I have blood, but there's no nosebleed or mouth bleed, mouth wound. So I went to go get tested and we're waiting for results. So next week I will be able to tell you if I just had a terrible health couple days that had nothing to do with COVID or if I had it. So tune in next week for a part two. No, I'm kidding. And being honest, uh, here's something that might be a shock to you. I don't want COVID. I know this might be weird to hear. But on the other side of that same coin, if it's not COVID, what the f*** is wrong with me? Physically, not mentally. Mentally is a whole other can of worms. But anyway, my future friends, yes, that is my severely weird opening to the third ever Future Flix Awards. I thought this was going to be the, um, the fifth annual, but I missed 2020 and 2019. So from now on, I hope this will be an annual awards show. You know, the awards show that, like most awards shows, don't really matter. There's not an actual award, though if anyone I give an award to actually wants it, I will make something, okay? And I will try my goddamned hardest. But a quick reminder, since it's been a couple years since I've done this, I talk about every movie I've seen during the year. So it could be my first time watching a movie from the 1950s, and I will include it in this. Though this year, I did separate them when I'm talking about the movies for each category by new releases and other movies, aka older releases, just so you know which ones are new. But almost all the categories only get one winner, except for Best Movie, I do give a Best Movie out of the new releases for 2020, and Best Movies out of the movies, all the movies I've seen last year. And then I also have some some random things thrown in there, so we go over Most Disappointing Movie, Biggest Surprise, uh, Worst Movie, and Best Movie, and then I talk about some notable performances, uh, Worst Performance in a Great Film, and then if you remember from previous years, I tried to name the awards something hilarious. I will have you rolling in the aisles because you are so 
overcome with laughter. No, I just I just do something dumb. But you will see. If this is your first ever awards show, welcome. Welcome. I am wearing my suit and tie. Not at all. I am in my pajamas. In my Superman pajama bottoms and my Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them shirt that I no longer wear outside because JK Rowling. That bitch can Rowling her way off a cliff for all I care. Because you guys really wanted to know what your host was wearing, right? Uh, yeah, I bet. Are any of you old enough to remember when um, Joan and Melissa Rivers were always at the awards show talking about what everyone was wearing? Like, okay, who are you wearing today? I remember that. That was always fun. Well, let's get started. All right, let's get started. Let's just talk about my stats because I do have some stats for the year 2020 thanks to Letterboxd. Once again, if you are on Letterboxd, let me know. I will add you. We will be good chummy pals. So in the year 2020, I watched 181 movies uh, for a total of 322 hours. Out of those 181, I reviewed 74 of them on the app. And I think that's not a bad year. So far this year, I've seen 10 movies. For a total of 17.7 hours, I reviewed 9 out of the 10 movies, but that's just because I haven't had a chance yet to review the uh, Birds of Prey or the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn yet. But 2020 wasn't a bad year as far as movies went. I, I mean, it was a terrible time for theaters because a lot of theaters are really hurting right now, but as far as my movie watching goes, it was not bad. Well, my future friends, let's get this started with the category Most Disappointing Movie. So out of the new releases I've seen, there's only one that made the list, and that was Disney and Pixar's Onward. I still rated the movie high, but I just found it was very disappointing. Uh, most disappointing for all the other movies that weren't released last year. We had Brightburn, Welcome to Marwin, My Spy, and Child's Play. And you all should know, because I've ranted about it on the show already, that Child's Play was very disappointing because they made, they made Chucky the sympathetic character, which they should never have done. So out of the five movies that are up for most disappointing, the winner of the Sewing Supplies instead of Royal Dansk Danish Cookies Award for the most disappointing movie of the year goes to... Onward. Onward, if you remember, about two elven brothers who embark on a quest to bring their deceased father back for one day. This features the voices of Tom Holland, Chris Pratt, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Octavia Spencer... Mel Rodriguez, Kyle Bornheimer, Lena Waithe, Ali Wong, Tracy Ullman, and John Ratzenberger, as always, in a Pixar film. So, Disney Pixar's Onward is a wonderful example of a great idea with poor execution. The idea that this fantasy world straight out of Dungeons and Dragons was a real place, and then technology started existing, and then magic started to go the way of the dodo, is an amazing idea. And then using that as the backdrop for a family drama, another good idea by Pixar. Because we have this kid, this kid named Ian, and for his birthday, he gets a uh, something from his dad. A magical staff that his dad had. And his kind of loser brother, who still believes in magic, helps Ian realize that... Oh, sorry, just a quick reminder, if you didn't see it in the show notes, there are spoilers in this. So I will be talking about the main plot points for all of the winners or for any award I give out. I'm going to be talking about that movie. So if you don't want any spoilers for Onward, just skip ahead a little bit. So where were we? So Ian and his brother Barley uh, go on a quest because Barley helps Ian realize that magic is still real and that they can use this magical crystal or this magical staff to see their father again, but it only lasts one day. So as Ian is trying to bring back the father, the crystal breaks and they need a new one. So they go on this quest. And as the quest goes on, as the brothers become closer, we realize two things. We realize that Ian, the youngest, doesn't remember the dad because he was but a wee baby when the dad died. We know that Barley, the elder child, has a lot of regrets when it comes to it because he was so scared and so sad that his dad was dying, he didn't go see his dad before he died, and it's something he always regretted. He didn't get to say goodbye. So right off the bat, family stuff like that is always an easy cry. Pixar movies are known for being tearjerkers. We know this. It is something that you have come to know if you are a fan of Pixar films, but... I can't remember in any other Pixar movie the sad moment being so easily foreshadowed. 
like I always say, it's that's not even a foreshadow. That's a five shadow is so obvious. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that's something I expect more out of a straight up Disney film than I do a Pixar film, because Pixar films are generally a little more clever with their stories. But when the movie wraps up, the whole thing feels like it was just rushed. It felt like this one hour and 42 minute movie was supposed to be two and a half hours, but they just cut out so much stuff just to fit in this smaller runtime. So the payoff in the end, when the when the climax happens, when we see Ian kind of stand up and be a man, and we see Barley get his moment with his dad, it doesn't feel as it doesn't feel like it should. Obviously, it's sad. It's obviously sad because you have to be some heartless monster not to find that sad. Because we had both kids wanting to see their father, but Ian has to sacrifice his shot to ever meet his dad, just so Barley can have the chance to say goodbye properly. If that doesn't punch you in the gut, then you are dead inside. But an ending alone can't save a film. As a whole, this movie felt too haphazard. It felt like we didn't get enough fleshed out. It felt like the writers got bored halfway through and just decided to wrap it up going, okay, let's move on to this other thing we're more excited for. Let's just um, let's just cram all this shit we wrote for Onward together and move on. I liked Onward. I may even rewatch it one day. It's not the worst Pixar film. We have the Cars series for that. We have Brave for that. But the reason it wins for most disappointing is because of the promise. It had so much promise, had so much potential that never got fulfilled. So that's why it won the Sewing Supplies instead of Royal Dansk Danish Cookies Award. And if you ever spent enough time at your grandparents' house, you know why that, why that is the most disappointing thing. You're like, oh, look at this. Some delicious Royal Dansk cookies. Nope, it's Grandma's Sewing Supplies. All right, my future friends, let's take our first break as we hear a word from our friends at the Somewhat Nerdy Radio Podcast. Please stay tuned. Are you looking for a nerd podcast that touches on every walk of nerd culture? Well, look no further. Somewhat Nerdy Radio is the podcast for you. We cover nerd culture, news, new movie reviews, bad movie reviews, video games, comics, with sprinkles of nerdy nostalgia throughout. Somewhat Nerdy Radio is a flagship podcast of the Somewhat Nerdy Podcast Network. Find us on every podcast app or stream it on somewhatnerdy.com. Good journey, nerds. All right, everyone, we are back. Welcome back, my future friends. We are here to talk about the biggest surprise movie of the year. So unlike disappointing, surprise is the opposite, where, yay, I didn't expect it to be as good as it was, and it really surprised me, and I liked it. So this is a more positive category. So for the new releases, we have Netflix's Extraction. That was a Chris Hemsworth action film. We have Sonic the Hedgehog and Palm Springs. Now, don't get me wrong. I didn't expect Palm Springs to be bad. I expected it to like it and to enjoy it, just not as much as I did. As for the biggest surprise out of the other movies not released in 2020, we had Dora and the Lost City of Gold. And if you remember that old horror movie, House of Wax with Paris Hilton, wasn't that bad. Escape Room from last year, I believe. And The Princess Switch. That is the 2018 Netflix original Christmas romance comedy. All right, so the winner of the extra fries at the bottom of your bag of fast food award for biggest surprise movie goes to... The Princess Switch. So this is about a young woman competing in a Christmas baking competition in Belgravia. Stacy, a Chicago baker, bumps into the princess fiancé who looks just like her. And they switch lives for two days. This stars Vanessa Hudgens from the High School Musical series, Sam Palladio from Nashville, Nick Sager from The Haves and the Have-Nots, Sue Ann Braun from Stargate SG-1, and Mark Fleischman from Wolf Blood. And you're right, I did talk about this movie already on the show. I talked about the Princess Witch series during the Christmas, uh, the Christmas episodes. And while originally the winner for this was going to be Sonic the Hedgehog, I ended up giving Sonic the Hedgehog a special award. I made the winner, the Princess Switch, because I actually really liked it. And because it felt like a a really good Hallmark Christmas movie. And you know Hallmark Christmas movies. Even if you don't watch them, you know them. They're these very cliche, very basic movies where... Okay, let's come up with a premise off the top of our heads here. Um, 
a young successful woman who is about to get her dream job as the head editor at a illustrious fashion magazine must go back home to auction off her grandpa's estate who passed away and she has auctioned it off as one last thing she has to do before she goes to this big job so she gets there and it's then she, we learn that it was her idea to sell the estate, that the estate has a bunch of people working on it, and all these people would lose their jobs. But she doesn't care because she's about to make it big. That is until she meets Rob, the hardworking ranch hand. And it's him that helps her remember to love again and that life is more than just being the best. And she decides to save the ranch and save the estate. And she moves there and marries Rob and, you know, shit like that. The type of film where you can 100% see where it's going, where it's so obvious which way it's going that you get bored. But the good news about movies like that is if other parts of it are good, you can ignore the fact that you can see where the story is going. At least I can. And with The Princess Switch, it was pretty obvious where it was going right from the start. Like right when they switched places, you could tell that Stacy was going to fall for the prince and that Lady Margaret was going to fall for Stacy's um, sous chef or assistant, Kevin. That Lady Margaret re doesn't really want to be a princess. She wants to be a normal person. And then Stacy doesn't mind being a princess and actually has really good ideas on how to make the royal family more helpful to the people. And what helped make this movie memorable for me was Vanessa Hudgens. It's because she was good enough to play the two roles, keep those characters separate, and then when they switched, you, the viewer, could tell what was going on. Because when Stacy was trying to do the accent that Lady Margaret had, it wasn't as good, and it slipped quite a bit. And the same goes for Lady Margaret trying to do Stacy's American accent. And that reminds me so much of that old Bugs Bunny cartoon, you know, Rabbit Season, Duck Season, when Elmer Fudd's... Uh, is going hunting and then Bugs goes and switches all of the rabbit season signs to duck season. And then you have Bugs who comes out pretending to be Daffy. So you have Bugs doing a Daffy voice. You have Daffy doing a Bugs voice. I view Vanessa Hudgens' performance in this a less impressive but still commendable version. The guys in this were just okay. They they really didn't add much. Uh, Sam Palladio and Nick Sager, Sager, whatever. They were okay. And it was actually the side characters, I thought, on top of Vanessa Hudgens, who helped sell this, uh, Frank and Miss Donatelli. I think this movie hit enough notes right. It, it did enough right to impress me. This movie is basic and predictable, but enjoyable. So that's why The Princess Switch, for me, is the winner of the biggest surprise. All right, my future friends, let's do a couple notable movies. Things I just want to talk about for a little bit, and then we'll get into the worst and then finish with the best films of the year. So let's start with an award that I call the Meryl Streep in a Chevy Commercial Award, which is basically the best performance in a mediocre movie. And this goes to the entire cast of A Marriage Story. That's Scarlett Johansson, Adam Driver, Laura Dern, Ray Liotta, and Alan Alda. This was one of the best acted movies I have seen in a long time. If you don't remember, Marriage Story was a movie from 2019 uh, by writer-director Noah Baumbach, who wrote a movie that's a compassionate look at marriage, breaking up, and a family staying together. But I will tell you what, this film was pointless. And if it wasn't for the outstanding performances of everyone involved, it would have gone on the list of worst movies. A sad drama for the sake of sad drama, not an interesting movie makes. But my god... A lot of you know I'm not, I wasn't the biggest Scarlett Johansson fan. If you look at her work, a lot of times she just plays some version of herself. But it's movies like Marriage Story and also Jojo Rabbit, which we'll be talking about on this show, that actually made me angry because I'm like, look, I'm looking at her going, you could have been acting like this this whole time. You could have been really good. But instead, you're famous for being Black Widow, one of the most boring and useless Avengers ever. And funny enough, it looks like the Black Widow movie, her what's supposed to be her final MCU performance, is going to be the best one. Where was all of that shit in all the other movies? And then you have Adam Driver, who's just always amazing too. And then Laura Dern, who owned it. She f***ing owned this movie. I think I will always be in awe of the acting in Marriage Story, though I will most likely never watch the film again. It was not worth it. 
All right, you know, let's do one more uh, notable movie awards and then we'll take another break. And the next category is the worst performance in a great film. So the winner of the Rat Turd and a Handful of Trail Mix Award goes to Emma Watson in Little Women. I'm going to say, until she proves me otherwise, Emma Watson is not a good actress and she got lucky with Harry Potter. She is more wooden than Long John Silver's leg. And as far as I know, uh, she seems to be a pretty good person. I, I don't know that much about her. So what she needs to do is pull a Kristen Stewart and go the f*** away and cut her teeth in indie films and then come back. Because Kristen Stewart was kind of a bland actress, went away to the indies, came back, and is now really, really good. So Emma Watson needs a little bit of that. All right, my future friends, let's take our next break. It is that time as we hear word from our friends at the Nerds of the Squared Circle podcast. Please stay tuned. Nerds of the Squared Circle on SomewhatNerdy.com. Nerds of the Squared Circle on SomewhatNerdy.com. Nerds of the Squared Circle on SomewhatNerdy.com. Hi, I'm Sam Jericho of SomewhatNerdy.com's Nerds of the Squared Circle. Join me, Snarf Chris, and the dude with the headband. We talk about wrestling and more wrestling do you like wrestling yeah Yeah. then you should listen to our podcast do you not like wrestling you should still listen to our podcast someone to read a comms nerds in the squared circle subscribe to us on itunes or your favorite podcast app today nerds in the squared circle on someonenerdy.com all right we are back we are back with the most surprising movie that stood the test of time of course, this is called the Bringing Your Non-White Friend to Thanksgiving Dinner and It All Goes Well Award. And the winner, you should already know, because I've talked about it quite a few times, is The Sound of Music from 1965. Because, let's be honest, there, there are quite a few things we look at when we look to see if an older movie stands the test of time. The first and most obvious, blatant racism. Uh, I didn't see any in this movie. Another thing we look for is diversity. There's not a lot of diversity. Weird, but of course... This movie takes place in the 1930s in Austria. So the fact that we see no people of color there is not a big shock. Also, how are people treated, especially women and minorities and any LGBTQ plus people in it? Well, as far as I could see in the movie, there were no people of color and there were no people who were openly uh, LGBTQ. But when we look at the female characters, we have some really good ones. Uh, Maria is a strong female character, and she's the lead. And that's pretty damn good for a movie that came out in 1965. So this was a good movie that didn't make me, you know, cringe at all. And remember, even in today's world, with modern movies, lack of diversity is more acceptable if it's for a historically accurate period piece. If you remember when 1917 came out, there was a lot of talk about, oh, where's where's anyone of color? But that was widely forgiven because it was about British forces during World War I. But if that new show on Netflix, Bridgerton, teaches us anything, is that if we are doing a period piece, but it's not going to be historically accurate, then it's 100% okay to have virtual rainbow of people of color in it. But again, for a period accurate movie, it is not a negative. My future friends, let's move on to a very special award I'm doing just to point out the movie. And it's the big win for gamers and the internet as a whole. And that award is called All Your Award or Belong to Us. And the winner is Sonic the Hedgehog. Because you remember me talking about it. And even if you didn't listen to the show back then, or you missed those episodes, you heard about the controversy revolving around Sonic the Hedgehog. Sonic looked horrible. Like, laughable, disturbingly bad. Which was so disappointing because it's not like we've never seen Sonic 3D before. I mean, Jesus, back on the Dreamcast, we had Sonic Adventure. We've had Sonic cartoons before. We know, or they should have known, the creators of this movie should have known what Sonic looks like. But instead, they f***ed it up and it looked like the thing of nightmares. So the internet and gamers as a whole rose up and said, no, no, we will not accept this. So instead of just releasing it anyway and saying, well, f*** you to the fans, they listened. And thanks to that, we got the Sonic we got. And you know what? It was a fun movie. It was it, it was a movie that was self-aware. It knew that it was trying to make a feature-length film out of a game that didn't have the biggest story. I mean, the first few games were just about Dr. Robotnik, Robotnik bleh, a.k.a. Eggman, capturing little forest creatures and putting them in machines, which is why you had to go around killing all the machines and releasing a bunch of creatures. 
So instead of making a story trying to stay true to the game, they created their own story, which really worked because they kept the spirit of who we think Sonic is. And it was a good movie for kids, good movie for fans of the series, and it had a good cast because we had James Marsden as the main human. We had Jim Carrey as Dr. Robotnik, who was who crushed it. We had Tika Sumter as James Marsden's love interest and Sonic being voiced by Ben Schwartz. And I'm glad at least that Ben Schwartz does voice acting for cartoons. It's something he does. So they didn't try and just get someone famous just to voice him. They got someone who is well-known, not super well-known, but he is a famous person and someone who does voice acting. So while it wasn't a great movie, it was a fun movie and a win for finally the studios paying attention to the gamers who play the games that they want to make movies about. So anyway, I think that was a win. All right, my future friends, one more special award. And so the winner of the Carrie Bradshaw Award for Worst Character goes to Dave from Little Monsters, played by Alexander England, who you know from Alien Covenant or Gods of Egypt. And this is Little Monsters from 2019, not to be confused with the Little Monsters from 1989, starring Fred Savage and Howie Mandel and Daniel Stern, you know, all those people. But alas, this was the Little Monsters from 2019, starring Lupita Nyong'o, that dude, Alexander England, and Josh Gad. That was the one about a washup musician, and he teams up with a teacher and a kids' show personality to protect a group of young children from a sudden outbreak of the zombies. And you heard me complain about this movie. I talked about it on the show before. But what really bothered me was that the trailer sold this as a Lupita Nyong'o forward movie, that she was the main character. And were she the main character, had Alexander England's character been lesser or even not in it, this would have been a much better film. But his character was needlessly awful. A self-obsessed dick who treats other people like sh**, like an actual really bad person, and then he sees this, he meets his nephew's school teacher, who he then takes a class photo to beat off to because he finds her hot. And then wants to hit on her, even though she's wearing an engagement ring. Even though he has this turnaround and he becomes a better person by the end of the movie, I don't give a shit about him. If he was completely out of the picture, no him, no Dave in the movie, the movie would have been a lot better. Because we would still have a shitty male character. We would have Josh Gad's Teddy McGiggle, who is a kids show host abusing his position to have sex with kids moms but having both of them having teddy and dave in the same movie was just too much and not even lupita nyong'o could save it he even tries to use his nephew to get his ex back and half the time ignores that his nephew has terrible allergies but really this award is for alexander england's character i know nothing about him as a human being i really don't i don't know anything about this guy but his character unforgivable. All right, my future friends, uh, I think that's it for the special awards. Let me look through my list, see if there's anything I really want to talk about. You know what? Let's talk about Parasite. I know I talked about it on the show already, but it's just, I gave it a high score, but it's one of those movies that I don't think I will ever watch again, just because it's one of those films you have to watch as a piece of art. Because what you should know, especially if you've, if you've listened to my show before, you should know that there are different ways to watch a movie. And one of those is as a piece of art. Because if you try to critically watch a movie, all movies the same way, you're going to have a bad time. Because you're going to look at something like Parasite and go, wow, this is a, a critically great movie. But then you, can, you can't watch anything else, like any goofy-ass films, because you're wearing the wrong lens. Because look, this year I watched almost all of the Final Destination films, and comparatively, if you compare movies like Marriage Story or Parasite or 1917 to Final Destination, it doesn't even hold up. It's like a Kevlar vest versus toilet paper for stopping a bullet. But then when you realize that it's okay to watch films for fun, then you like them a lot more. And I did. I liked these films, even though the 2009 The Final Destination was probably the weakest in the series. Midsummer. that was another one. That was another film that had some great performances in it, but it was a mediocre movie. Florence Pugh was just amazing in it, and she's great in anything she does. You know who also could have won the Worst Character Award was Scotty from Vertigo? I like Vertigo. It's one of my favorite Alfred Hitchcock films. But watching it now, watching it this year, I realize that, you know, we are supposed to watch Scotty's Descent into Madness after the events of Kim Novak, who played Madeline, well, Madeline and Judy, uh, Kim Novak's death, 
and his downward spiral from that point. But he was so f***ing creepy after he meets Judy that it was hard to pay attention to anything else. He forces his way into her apartment. He forces his way into her apartment and makes her go on a date with him, which is super f***ing creepy. And then he starts dressing her like the other woman. Super f***ing creepy as well. The only thing that saves Vertigo is the fact that it is a really well-done film. And the only problem, in my eyes, is Scotty's character. And that his... When he descends into madness, that it came across as more creepy male stalker as opposed to insane. Still a great film, just not as easy to watch anymore. Uh, you know, my wife and I recently watched uh, Wonder Woman 1984. We, we did. We finally sat down and watched it. And the reason that came to mind is because I'm looking through all my movies from 2020 and I see Mamma Mia, Mamma Mia 1 and 2. And this is something that Anne brought up, who said that Mamma Mia 2 is just really for big fans of the first one because it's not a good movie on its own, but it has more songs, more of the characters you love. It just has more of everything you loved in the first. And I feel the same way about Wonder Woman 1984. It wasn't bad, but it was pointless. All right, my future friends, I think that's it. I think that's everything I want to talk about on the side. So let us take our next break as we hear a word from our friends at We're Doing Fine with Robbie and Lisa. Then we'll be right back with the worst movies of 2020. Stay tuned. There are several ways to raise money for a good cause. Some do it by running marathons. Some host high-dollar dinners. And some just do it by clever internetting. We here at the Watch Your Mouth Podcast employ a different approach. Wall-to-wall, filthy f***ing language. Go to a grocery store, I'm like, I know exactly what I need. I get in there, I'm like, Yeah, <laughs> the f*** did I even come here for? With our charity swear jar, every f***ed up utterance from our unfettered gobs is a dime in the right direction. The motherfucker's a mouth breather. Gaming, movies, life musings, it's all here. Served on a bed of f***s and garnished with a crown of Shut the f*** up! How the f*** did we get here? Fuck all that, f***ing jelly bean! So if you want to hear us do good things with bad words, check out the Watch Your Mouth podcast on iTunes. SoundCloud, Facebook, or online at WIMpodcast.com. And remember, swearing is caring, so watch your mouth. All right, my future friends, welcome back. It is time for the worst movies of 2020. And out of the movies that were released in 2020, the two worst are Artemis Fowl and Hubie Halloween. And the list of worst from all the other movies not released in 2020 are Six Underground, Nobody's Fool, The Spy Who Dumped Me, Frozen 2, The Lighthouse, Little Monsters, The Bye-Bye Man, The Disappointments Room, and The Family Stone. That's right. I know The Family Stone is a much-beloved Christmas movie for a lot of people, but you're wrong. That movie was shit. All it was was a movie about who can out-ass the other and how bad they can make the obviously mentally ill woman feel. But anyway, let's talk about the winner. So the winner of the Wet Socks on a Cold Day Award is... The Lighthouse. I'm surprised this is my answer, because I actually finished watching The Lighthouse. I didn't finish watching Six Underground. Anne and I agreed that we can DNF the movie because we both hated it. But if you sat me down and you said, hey, Billiam, you have to rewatch The Lighthouse or Six Underground, what would it be? I would have to say Six Underground, even though I actually finished The Lighthouse just because Six Underground actually has a point. So let's talk about The Lighthouse. This is about two lighthouse keepers who tried to maintain their sanity while living on a remote and mysterious New England island in the 1890s. This stars Robert Pattinson from Tenant. And Willem Dafoe from Spider-Man. And a whole lot of semen. And no, I'm not talking about sailors. This has to have been one of the artsiest art house movies I have ever watched. Because let me tell you this. The performances were really good. Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe are great. But the story is pointless. And the movie reeks of purposefully trying to be an artsy indie film. So it all came across as a disingenuine mess. My future friends, have you ever watched a cartoon when you're growing up? Uh, back in the day. And the there was a joke where someone was watching some artsy French film that had no point and they didn't get it. This was that movie. First off, the movie's black and white. 
And that's not always a bad thing. There are very good reasons to make a modern black and white movie. It really can work if done well, but this wasn't done well. Not a single thing would have been lost if it was in color. The black and white did nothing to add to the atmosphere at all. This film was brought to us by Robert Eggers, who you would know if you saw the movie The Witch. That was the indie horror sensation from 2015. Uh, it's one of the movies my wife and I disagree on, though I see her points. I liked it, but I liked it as an artsy indie film. So I thought I knew what I was getting into when we started The Lighthouse, but I didn't. I didn't expect to see Robert Pattinson sneaking up a lighthouse at night, watching Willem Dafoe jerk off, and then watching the semen drip down. I didn't expect him to have some weird dream. Maybe it was a dream of a washed-up mermaid who was dead, and then he molests her, and she has a huge Georgia O'Keeffe-style vagina. This film was a well-acted mess. What really hurt the movie was some of the weirdest parts were weird for the sake of weirdness. There is no clear point to a lot of it, and if you have to search so hard for a point in a movie, is it even worth it? And I understand that the narrative arc is supposed to be about their descent into madness, but it still felt like a pointless film. Okay, I was looking at some reviews for the film, and this person who gave it 10 out of 10, I'm just going to read this verbatim. User, IMDb user Hogwarts underscore Slytherin says, A masterpiece, the explanation with no spoilers. The lighthouse combines mythology and mood to tell a story about people who don't understand themselves. Like the fire Prometheus nabbed from the gods, the light at the top of the tower represents everything, all knowledge. And looking into it, Thomas understood everything, all at once. What the f*** kind of useless bullshit is that? Whatever drugs this person did before they watch, they, they watch the movie, I want to try. What the lighthouse really is, is a blank slate to read whatever the fuck you want to read into it. If you are like one of these people that gave it a really high score and read all this deep shit into it, okay, fine, good for you, whatever. But just know that the movie doesn't back up your claims. It is a pointless film. The scene in Call Me By Your Name where Army Hammer eats Timothy Chalamet's jizz peach had more purpose than anything in The Lighthouse. And if you've never seen or read Call Me By Your Name, yes, I said jizz peach. Yes, that's exactly what you think it is. I can't hate this movie enough, so I'm just going to stop trying. You know, now that I've ranted a bit, I, I still hate the movie, don't get me wrong. But looking at the other movies on my worst movies list, I think they more instead belonged it belonged it. <laughs> I think instead they belonged on the disappointed, uh, disappointed category. Frozen 2, disappointing because it was pointless. Spy Who Dumped Me, mediocre at best, disappointing. Nobody's Fool, disappointing because the trailer sold the wrong movie. I think the second worst movie would have to be The Family Stone. And I, I, I still find it weird that I say that because, like I said, we didn't finish watching Six Underground. We stopped. But at least Six Underground is a mindless action movie, which I could just put on and feel numb to as opposed to a movie like The Lighthouse or The Family Stone, which are supposed to have a purpose, but just fail. All right, my future friends, before we go on to our final break, I actually broke the best movie of the year into two categories. Uh, the first category was best movie that was a new release in 2020. So let's do that first. We'll go on to our final break and then we'll end with the best overall movie. So let's talk about the nominees for the best new release movie of 2020. And the nominees are The Half of It, Sonic the Hedgehog, Palm Springs, Tenet, Vampires vs. the Bronx, The Trial of the Chicago 7, and Jingle Jangle A Christmas Journey. Of course, all movies I enjoyed quite a bit, all new releases in 2020, but there can only be one, so the winner of the Prettiest Tree in a Forest Fire Award for Best New Film goes to... Tenant. Armed with only one word, Tenant, and fighting for the survival of the entire world, a protagonist journeys through the twilight world of international espionage on a mission that will unfold into something beyond real time. This stars John David Washington from Ballers, Robert Pattinson from Water for Elephants, or Lighthouse, Elizabeth Debicki from Widows, Kenneth Branagh from Murder on the Orient Express, Himish Patel from Yesterday, 
Michael Caine from The Dark Knight, Aaron Taylor Johnson from Godzilla, and Indian actress Dimple Kapadia. Look, you know if you like Christopher Nolan movies. You do, because you've seen them. You've seen Dunkirk, you've seen Interstellar, Dark Knight Rises, Inception, The Dark Knight, Batman Begins, The Prestige, Insomnia, Memento, Following. You've seen a few of those, and you know if his style of movies is your thing. You also know that when it comes to his original works, they can get pretty weird. Let's look at Interstellar, or Inception, or The Prestige. We know that they can be hard to follow. We know that there's going to be a wonderful mix of clever CG and practical effects. Uh, Take a look at the scene from uh, Inception with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and they made the whole stage turn so they didn't have to use CG for that. But we also knew before Tenet was even released that it was going to be really confusing. How do we know this? Because we know that as movies being filmed, the actors were saying that they had no idea what was going on. We know that actors were only given the parts of the script that they were in. And we knew based on the trailer that it's going to be super weird. So the good news is, is that people who had no interest in something like that probably stayed away. It's like with movies from actors like Tom Cruise, Melissa McCarthy, Seth Rogen, you know if you like them or not. All right, my future friends, enough of that. Let us take another short break. Hear a word from our friends at We're Doing Fine with Robbie and Lisa, then we'll come right back with the top five movies of 2020 out of all the movies, not just the new releases. So please stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Lisa. And I'm Robbie. And we host a show called We're We're Doing Doing Fine. Fine. We're friends from across the ocean. I'm from Scotland. And I'm from California. Join us every week as we chat about biscuits. You mean cookies. Brexit. Whatever's going on here. Who knows? Almost dying. Why we're single. Popular culture. And basically everything and anything that can distract us from this postmodern hellscape we're all living in. Because we're We're doing doing fine. fine. All right, we are back with the top five movies that I watched in the year 2020. And if you've been listening to the show for a while, at least throughout 2020, this shouldn't be a shocking list for you. But you know what? Thank you for listening. Anyway, let's start with number five. And it's a movie from 2019 called Jojo Rabbit. This comes to us from director and screenplay writer Taika Waititi based on a book called Caging Skies by Christine Leonis, I think. Anyway, this is about a young boy in Hitler's army who finds out his mother is hiding a Jewish girl in their home. And this movie had a stacked cast. So it does star a newcomer, Roman Griffin Davis as Jojo, has Thomas and Mackenzie from The King, has Scarlett Johansson from Lost in Translation, Taika Waititi, the writer and director from What We Do in the Shadows, Sam Rockwell from Moon, Rebel Wilson from Pitch Perfect, Alfie Allen from John Wick, and Stephen Merchant from Fighting with My Family. And this is the second movie I watched that shows that, yes, indeed, Scarlett Johansson can act. She has been just taking roles that have been allowing her to be a blank slate. And what I like is that this is a very layered movie. So behind this very child-driven movie, and it's not a kid's movie, it's just child-driven in the fact that our main character and how we see the world is based through Jojo, this kid who I don't think he gets it. In fact, I know he doesn't get it because he's eating all this bullshit that the Hitler youth is feeding him going, oh yeah, Jews are evil. You have to watch out for these Jews. And then he meets this girl that his mom is keeping in the house and slowly he realizes, wait a minute, she's a person too. But behind this boy in the striped pajama-esque story that was told through the lens of child's eyes, we have a darker, more realistic story of this woman behind enemy lines, basically fighting all she can do to fight the Nazis. So while we see Jojo not really quite getting what his mother is doing, you and I watching the film fully get it. And then also the whole time we're watching him go through this Hitler youth training camp. And we have what turns out to be a quirky cast of characters who When you look behind everything, when you look behind what we're presented on the surface is really dark and gritty because guess what? They're the Nazis. And it's always a hard pill to swallow. But what I think this movie does well is show us that 
the German soldiers were human too. Because like I've said many times before on the show, you know I've said this, that there are just a few groups of people you can always kill wholeheartedly in movies. You can just slaughter them and no one cares. And that's Nazis. That is the number one. It is always okay to kill these people willy-nilly because they're Nazis. The epitome of evil. But what movies like this show us and remind us is that it's not that simple. Because we could have someone like Jojo who's just brainwashed. We could have someone like Sam Rockwell's character, Captain Klenzendorf, who you really get the feeling goes along with it because he has to. And then we have people like Stephen Merchant's character, uh, let's see, Deertz, who you look at and go, yeah, you are evil. You are an Indiana Jones villain. And the whole time we have Hitler in Jojo's mind. So his imaginary friend Hitler, who starts out goofy and funny. And then as Jojo starts to realize really what's going on, as his youth starts to slip away because he realizes that this isn't a world you can be a kid in anymore, his imaginary friend Hitler gets darker and darker and darker and meaner. And you can also feel as the movie goes on, the mood changes from satire and kind of happy-go-lucky at times in the beginning to dark and gritty and real at the end. And I think this is a brilliantly done movie. This goes straight to my top 10 of favorites of all time. All right, folks, next up in number four, the fourth place is a movie called 1917. Another movie from 2019, and it's about April 6th. 1917, as a regiment assembles to wage war deep in enemy territory, two soldiers are assigned to race against time and deliver a message that will stop 1,600 men from walking into a deadly trap. This stars Dean Charles Chapman from Game of Thrones, George McKay from Captain Fantastic, Colin Firth from The King's Speech, Mark Strong from Kingsman The Secret Service, and Bumper Cars Cordycep from The Imitation Game. Look, I know that joke is played out, but it makes me smile, so I'm going to keep doing it. So this is brought to us by director Sam Mendes, who's brought us movies like American Beauty, Road to Perdition, Jarhead, uh, Skyfall, Spectre. Some great and really dark movies. Skyfall is probably one of the darkest, if not the darkest Bond movie. And I think it was the best cinematically shot. I think it was the best paced Bond movie. I think it's the best Bond movie. Though I still do love Pierce Brosnan's Bond movies as kind of goofy world-ending films, there's a lot to be said for Daniel Craig's Bond and then Sam Mendes's contribution to that. And then so then he turns around and does this, a World War I epic, and what have I said before, we don't see a lot of movies from World War I. World War II is the favorite child, it is the most loved one from Hollywood, because there's so many stories, and there are still so many untold stories that are worth movies, stories that deserve to be told from World War II. But we don't go to World War I a lot. We see about as many World War I movies as we do American Revolution movies. But what Sam Mendes delivers to us with this film is a very dark, gritty, and real-feeling war drama. And what's even more impressive is that it's almost completely in real time. And while it was done using very clever shooting and editing, it does feel like it's one constant shot. And that really adds to the tension of the movie going, yes, time is ticking down. Through and through, this was a fantastically done movie and even one that's going to make it on my rewatch list. All right, my future friends, next up, the third best movie of the year is Booksmart. On the eve of their high school graduation, two academic superstars and best friends realize that they should have worked less and played more. Determined not to fall short of their peers, the girls try to cram four years of fun into one night. This stars Caitlin Deaver from Justified, Beanie Feldstein from Lady Bird, Jessica Williams from Hot Tub Time Machine 2, Jason Sudeikis from We're the Millers, Lisa Kudrow from Friends, Will Forte from The Last Man on Earth, Billy Lord from Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, Skylar Gazondo from The Santa Clarita Diet, Mason Gooding from Love, Victor, and Diana Silver from Space Force. I can never talk about this film without also talking about Superbad. 
you know, that movie from 2007, uh, written by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg with Michael Sarah and Jonah Hill. I always have to bring it up because people know Superbad. And it was unavoidable that when you talked about Booksmart, you would talk about Superbad because they're very similar in base premise. But what sets them apart is that Booksmart is just a better movie. I still love Superbad. I remember watching it way back when it came out. But there's something about Olivia Wilde's vision that just worked so much better. And what's more that it was just a better movie, it's better because it's a more modern version. It has more, uh, more diversity in it. And it was also a really good commentary on your standard film like this. So instead of these two being the nerds, people picking on them because they're nerds, people hating them because they're nerds, we find out that they didn't get invited to parties and they didn't get invited out because they never went. And yeah, some of these guys were assholes to them, but they're kids. That's just kids being kids. And while bullying is a problem, the level that they got is very negligible. So this was a very good movie, not only for its high school party quality and for its quality as a comedy, but also having actual deep characters. If you've never seen Booksmart, do it because it is the raunchy comedy you expect from a trailer like you see, but also has heart and it has fantastic characters and it's just a better done super bad. All right, folks, the last movie before we get to the winner of my favorite movie from last year in the number two spot is Black Klansman. This is about Ron Stallworth, an African-American police officer from Colorado Springs, Colorado, who successfully manages to infiltrate the local Ku Klux Klan branch with the help of a Jewish surrogate who eventually becomes its leader. This is based on actual events. This stars John David Washington from Ballers, Adam Driver from Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, Michael Buscemi, brother of Steve Buscemi, Laura Harrier from Spider-Man Homecoming, Ryan Eggold from New Amsterdam, Jasper Pakowin Pakonin from Vikings, Topher Grace from Wit a Date with Tad Hamilton, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. from Cedar Rapids, and Robert John Burke from Robocop. Yes, the original three Robocops. So not only is this a very topical, very important movie for this time, well, for all time, of course, but especially with the Black Lives Matter movement being as huge and gaining as much momentum and being as forefront as it is. This is a very important movie for that time, but it's also a very important movie for many other reasons, just because it's a good film. So what we really have on our hands with this movie is a biographical comedy crime period piece. And that's a lot of words all together. But it's a biographical movie because the events are true. And while, you know, some facts were not quite right, it basically gets the gist of it. It's a comedy because, well, goddamn, it's funny. It's a crime movie because it's about infiltrating the Ku Klux Klan while they're planning a terrorist attack. And it's a period piece because this oozes the 70s. And what's more, this is directed by one of the greats, directed by Spike Lee, who you would know from movies like Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, She's Gotta Have It. Remember 1999's Summer of Sam? That was him too. He is an accomplished director who, you know, I think he knows what he's doing by this point. So we have a not only a very topical movie, but we have this topical movie filled with wonderful performances. John David Washington, one of my new favorite actors. And he's not very new, but from what I see on his IMDb page is he's picky with his roles and that helps because he's really good and he's just not throwing everything to the wall to see what sticks. And he just happens to be Denzel Washington's kid. But already with his limited repertoire of movies, he has done quite a bit and we know that he can do it and he can do it well. He kicked ass in Tenant, and he stole the show in Black Klansman. And what impresses me most about Black Klansman is that it, it does have a message. It does have something it's trying to say, and it balances it perfectly. The movie doesn't get lost because they're trying to push the message too much, and the message doesn't get lost because they're trying to focus on making an entertaining movie. Spike Lee managed this perfectly. This is a very good movie with an outstanding amount of rewatchability and amazing performances from John David Washington and Adam Driver and Laura Harrier. It's just great. 
All right, my future friends, it is time for the final film, my top movie that impressed me oh so much last year. It's even now on my top five favorite movies of all time list. So the winner of the Tina Turner, Simply the Best, Better Than All the Rest, Better Than Any Movie I've Ever Seen Award is... Little Women. Joe March reflects back and forth on her life, telling the beloved story of the March sisters, four young women each determined to live life on her own terms. This stars Saoirse Ronan from Hannah, Florence Pugh from Fighting With My Family, Eliza Scanlon from Sharp Objects, Emma Watson from Harry Potter, Laura Dern from Jurassic Park, Timothy Chalamet from Call Me By Your Name, Bob Odenkirk from Better Call Saul, Chris Cooper from American Beauty, and Meryl Streep from The Devil Wears Prada. I'm going to be honest, uh, director and screenplay writer Greta Gerwig knocked this one out of the park. And the people who sell this movie are Laura Dern in one of her best performances, if not her best performance ever, and Florence Pugh, who stole the show. Uh, Eliza Scanlon as Beth was was good. She did a good job. Sir Ronan as Joe was good. Emma Watson existed in the film perfectly fine. She stood there and did things. But Laura Dern and Florence Pugh made the movie great. The weird thing with this movie was, was that I went into it not knowing anything about it. I have I had never actually seen any version of Little Women before. I mean, I've seen bits and pieces, but never enough to count as a viewing. And I've never read the book, so I went in blind. And for a, a while, I asked myself, how would my experience of this movie change if I had seen the others? Let's look at just a couple of the others. We have the famous one from 1994 that had a cast of uh, people like Winona Ryder, uh, Kirsten Dunst, Claire Danes, Christian Bale, Eric Stoltz, Susan Sarandon. Back in 2017, there was a PBS miniseries, three-episode miniseries I never watched. We have the movie from 1949 with June Allison, Peter Lawford, Margaret O'Brien, Elizabeth Taylor, Janet Lee. That's a stacked cast. Let's go to 1933, Catherine Hepburn as Joe. And then we have the 2018 modern retelling with uh, Leah Thompson and uh, not anyone else I recognize. And even keeping in mind the fact that some of those movies I just mentioned, some of those versions of it had some of the greatest Hollywood has ever seen, I think this was the best version. And I do feel like I can say that without watching any of the others, just because of what a good film it was. And even talking to other people who have seen other iterations or have read the book and are familiar with it, still liked it, and that too is a good sign. And for the March Girls, we have Sir Ronan and Florence Pugh heading it up, two of the more impressive women currently in Hollywood, Laura Dern, who's in her renaissance, Timothy Chalamet, who has this awkward, geeky lovability to him, and then throw in for fun Meryl Streep and Chris Cooper. Like, that's amazing. That is an amazing cast. But we know that even a great cast can't save a movie. So it took Greta Gerwig's treatment of the story without changing it and her eye for cinema. All these things came together to make a fantastic film. And what's great about the film is that it is rewatchable. A period drama based on an old book has rewatchability. Little Women was a great movie through and through. In my opinion, its only hang-up was the casting of Emma Watson. She was just a little too bland, and I didn't believe anything she did, but everyone else was so great they lifted her up with them. So Little Women, my favorite movie that I saw last year, and has gone on my short list my of my top five. So there we go, my future friends, my best movie of the year. You know my worst movie of the year, biggest disappointment, biggest surprise. You know what I think, but now I want to know what you think. Uh, if you care to, share with me somehow. Message me on Twitter or Instagram or email me, you know, billionreviews at gmail.com. Let me know your favorite movie of last year, be it new or an old one. Uh, your worst, your biggest surprise, biggest disappointment. Let me know. Chit chat with me. But until then, my future friends, this is it until episode 191, which will go back to a, you know, a more normal episode where I give you the new news, the new trailers, and then I tell you about any new movies coming out. But since, you know, theaters 
are still closed. We're doing streaming movies. And then I talk about one or two films I've seen on streaming lately that you two could watch because I will try to keep them on uh, on the bigger services. So without further ado, let's jump right into the closing housekeeping. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and any podcast app, as well as the somewhat nerdy website that is somewhatnerdy.com. I would really appreciate it if you take a few minutes out of your day to give the podcast a rating. I would love five stars, please. And also share the podcast, share with your friends. That is how we grow here on the show. And then how do you reach me? That is a great question. You can leave a comment for me on the Somewhat Nerdy website or Facebook page. You can leave a comment on SoundCloud. You can hit me up on Twitter or Instagram at BilliamSWN. You can email me at BilliamReviews at gmail.com. And please consider supporting the show on Patreon. You can find a link in the show notes and also on the Somewhat Nerdy site. Be sure to check out the other shows in the network, Somewhat Nerdy Radio and Nerds of the Squared Circle. Don't forget to support the friends of the show. You've heard their ads tonight. Please check out my personal blog, BilliamTheNerd.com. And then finally, my dear friends, my dear, dear listeners, my future friends, please remember that no matter where life takes you, no matter what your week has in store, just take some time to catch a flick. I'm Billion from Somewhat Nerdy signing off, and I'll see you in the future.